Welcome to the Podglomerate. I have a feeling that in the next election, you could be swamped with candidates, but you'll have plenty of those Democrats coming over and you're going to say, no, sir, no, thank you. No, ma'am, perhaps ma'am. So I ask you, are you going to be nicer to the president? I don't think he knows how to deal with a girl from the Bronx. Six of our seven challengers are women. This election day, there will be over 250 women on the ballot running for the House and Senate. That's a new record. 234 women running for the House and 22 for the Senate. By just about every election forecast, after the dust settles on November 6th, there will be a record number of women in office, in Congress and at the state and local level. It seems Donald Trump has awoken a female majority that is outraged by the president's words and actions. And if there is a democratic wave, it's women who will likely have caused it. Republicans face a major problem these midterms, and a lack of female support could be an existential threat for the GOP, in this election and in future ones. But are we overstating the impact of women this election? Do Republicans really have an unprecedented woman problem, or will voters eventually fall into their old, familiar patterns? If the Democratic future is female, why did Donald Trump win among white women in 2016? The answers might not be as neat and tidy as we all think. I'm Matt Fuller, and this is The Wave. I think what happened was we had women all over this country wake up on the day after the election, November 2016, and say, oh my gosh, what happened here? That's Representative Sherry Bustos from Illinois. She's a member of Democratic leadership in the House, and she's been very involved in getting more women to run for office. And, you know, I think so many of us were bracing ourselves uh, to have the first female president and the excitement that went along with that. And um, then to see that, you know, we lost the presidency to uh, Donald Trump, it it was a wake-up call. If, and again, if you fast forward to one of the, piece, uh, the early pieces of legislation in the Trump administration was um, dismantling the Affordable Care Act. And we have so many women who are running now who look at that news conference when President Trump, surrounded by the um, Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives, basically cheering Um, on the fact that they just took away health care for millions of Americans. That was a big motivator for a lot of people to get in. We've actually heard this explicitly from some female candidates, that they saw their congressman smiling in the Rose Garden with Trump and the Republican colleagues after the House passed their health care bill. And that was the moment they decided to run for Congress. Here's an ad from Democratic candidate Alyssa Slotkin, who's running in Michigan. So when I saw Congressman Bishop smiling at the White House after voting to gut protections for pre-existing conditions, something inside me broke. 
That was a, a moment that um, was very, very upsetting to people who have relied on good health care for their families. And I've heard it described, there's a, a candidate named Betsy Dirksen-Lonergan who's running out of Springfield. And I've, Ronnie Davis. Yep, yes. and I, but I've heard her describe it, it looked like a frat party. And um, and again, so that was a motivator. But so so this all the the um, you know the win from President Trump in November of 2016, his swearing in where we had the women's march the next day, um, to the Affordable Care Act dismantling and the the celebration, uh, that has led to a record number of women running for office. And we now have about half of the uh, those who are running in these. Uh, districts where we think we can have success are, are women. So, so when we talk about this is the year of the woman, it is literally the year of the woman. It is the year of the woman. Again, 256 women are on the ballot running for Congress. More women are expected to be in Congress after this year than ever before. And women may be the reason Democrats take back the House. We had way too many, not just women, but too many Democrats sit out the November of 2016 election. I think it was a result of a lot of things. Um, it was, you had the, the Bernie-Hillary dynamic and people who were supportive of Bernie Sanders who felt like he was given a raw deal, um, thought they, they had a hard time, many had a hard time getting on board with Hillary Clinton. So they sat it out and today we see the effect of that. Or we see people who are discouraged by the political process thinking that their vote is not going to make a difference. Um, way, way too many younger people feel that. Um, there are a lot of people who see the dysfunction in Washington, D.C. and say, you know, how am I going to make a difference? But Bustos thinks Donald Trump's election and some of the policies Republicans have put forth, like health care, are impressing upon women the need for them to run for office. So you see a, a, a guy like Donald Trump who was elected um, after you know, so many derogatory comments that are made that he made about whether it's women um, or African Americans or you know people, uh, gosh, in so many different categories, and you know it's kind of like a you know a, a wake up to your senses that I cannot sit this out. I have to be involved. And I think that's what we're seeing now with a record number of women running and hopefully a record number of women elected is a direct result of that. Bustos isn't just cheering on female candidates. She's actually started a program called Build the Bench, which aims to help women candidates run for office. Last election cycle, my role at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee was I was the vice chair of recruitment. What I realized either traveling around the country or making phone calls, that in way too many cases, it was difficult to find somebody who was a good fit for a, a certain congressional district. And I realized that our bench in the Democratic Party was weak, or, or it certainly could be strengthened. Tie that together with the fact that I love sports. I played college basketball and um, college volleyball. And anybody who knows anything about sports knows that you've got to have a strong bench in order to be successful. So, you know, in the case of basketball, you have your five players out there. And if somebody gets tired or fouls out or gets injured um, or just, you know, needs a, needs a little break, if you're, if you're sixth player or your seventh player or your eighth player, if, if they're good, you can keep going and, and have a strong team. So um, that's where we weren't good in the Democratic Party, in my opinion, um, especially as it pertained to recruiting people to run for Congress. 
So uh, I started through our campaign, uh, something that we call Build the Bench. And what that is, is we are putting on all day boot camps to train people to run for office and to win. And the idea is that we, we teach people to learn the fundamentals of grassroots organizing, social media, messaging, and fundraising, because it's really those four areas. If you can get that down and do well at that, that's, that's what leads to success. Boost Us is focusing on helping women who are new to politics, who are maybe running for lower offices for the first time at the state and local level. The idea is to stock the shelves with great female politicians at the lower levels, and then they can move up to higher offices later. But the, yeah, the idea is that you could look to any level where somebody could have a little bit of elected office experience um, and see potential in them and say, you know what, you ought to run for Congress or you ought to run for whatever the next level up. So that's the whole idea of this. We've had, um, I think, going on 300 people go through our, our various training programs, our Build the Benches, and we've had those who have run, um, we've had a 71% success rate. There are plenty of reasons a historic number of women are running for office in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has traditionally done better with women. Generally speaking, their policies seem to appeal to women more. But Republicans also think the lack of organizations encouraging women to run in their party is a problem. So I think this year, particularly, we've seen a record number of candidates that are running for office, but at least 75%, if not more, are Democrats, not Republicans. That's Heather Cagle. She reports on Democrats for Politico, and she was on the podcast during our Pelosi episode. But she's heard from Republicans on this topic, too. So you start asking why that is. And when you ask Republican uh, candidates and pollsters and consultants, one of the big things that they say is that we don't have an Emily's list on our side. We don't have someone like Democrats have had. Emily's list has been around, God, since the early 90s, right? We don't have that group that are, you know, bringing in and recruiting these candidates and things like that. But the other issue, of course, the big elephant in the room is Donald Trump, right? And how are you uh, a female Republican candidate that stands with Trump, given the way that he has perceived and has treated women, not just with the Kavanaugh, with him um, mocking her accuser at a mocking his accuser at a rally, but also he's been accused of sexual assault by multiple women, things like all kinds of things. And so, what we've really seen is, you know a large number of Democratic women signing up to run to run against Trump this cycle, and a, a smaller number of Republican women who may or may not align themselves with the president, depending on their district. And what does that mean for the long term? Well, this is a problem that Republicans really have to figure out how to solve, because if you look at the numbers in Congress now, an overwhelming majority of the current congressional members that are women are Democrats, too. Right. Um, and I don't think it's one that they know the answer to. They they don't know how to solve the problem, I don't think. But women aren't just running for office because of new programs helping them get their foot in the door. And it's not just a reaction to Donald Trump. This year, we could see 30 to 40 new women elected to the House. And that would shatter the record of 24 that we saw in 1919. 92, which was the year of the, the woman, supposedly. So That's Dave Wasserman, the House editor at the Cook Political Report. On top of being one of the best handicappers on House races, he's been talking a lot about the historic number of women running for office. And this would put that to shame in terms of the number of, of new women elected if that comes to pass. And 
more than 100 women could be serving in the House for the first time ever. And right now there are 84. Um, and that's entirely going to be driven by Democrats because Democrats are, are over half women in terms of their, their nominees, excluding incumbents. Uh, and Republicans are going to lose their their uh, ranks of, of women. They're, they're probably going to decline by about a quarter to a third. Wasserman's explanation for this is pretty simple. Well, it comes down to identity politics, no surprise there, and, and what the party's primary electorates prefer. Because in a Democratic primary, the message that we need to make Congress look more like the people it represents, that resonates mm -hmm. a lot. We've seen about a 10 to 12 point bonus for, for women in Democratic primaries based on, you know, if, if you had divided the votes between primary candidates completely blind to their gender, women are, are overperforming by 10 to 12 points. On the Republican side, we see women are doing about even, you know, with, with what we would expect if the vote were divided evenly blind to gender. and. The, the dominant theme on the Republican side is loyalty to Trump. I also saw something that, you know, this claim about that the ultimate swing voter right now is the non-college educated white woman, right? Is that is that what you think it is? I mean, who, who are who's really the swing voter in this election? Yeah, I would say there are two groups of swing voters. Uh, first would be the Hillary Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, the, Rep the kind of country club Republicans who are questioning their uh, their allegiance to uh, to the Republican Party in the era of Trump. And I, th I would argue that group is predominantly college-educated women. Affluent, college-educated, suburban. Right. So like, you know, Orange County, California, Morris County, New Jersey, uh, suburbs of Dallas and Houston and Richmond and all of that. But then the other swing group of voters would be Trump Democrats. And I would argue uh, in particular the women without college degrees who had long voted against Republicans because they saw them as the bar, as the party of Bible thumpers and mm -hmm. specifically social conservatism turned them off and the party's stances against abortion against gay marriage and you know they saw Republicans as the party of the rich and they saw Democrats as the party of working people and Donald Trump came in and kind of mutated that that Republican gene into a populist gene in 2016 and so got a lot of, of those men and women in his corner. But now I think many of the of those women in particular who were Trump Democrats are accessible to Democratic congressional candidates in 18. Essentially, what Dave Wasserman is saying is that there are two main groups of swing voters, and both may be driven by women. For one, you have those college-educated women in suburban, affluent, educated areas. We talked about voters from these areas in our last episode on the Trump effect. The so-called resistance may be fueled by these women. But there's also another group, women who may be best described as Trump Democrats. And another big question this election is whether those women stick with Republicans, whether they vote for the Democrat, or whether they show up at all. I think voters across the country were tuned into the Kavanaugh hearings. That's DCCC Communications Director Meredith Kelly. What they saw was Dr. Christine Ford provide powerful, credible, and all too familiar uh, memories of her time in high school with Brett Kavanaugh. Anyone, and it's far too many people, any man or woman that has ever been sexually assaulted 
felt like they were watching their own childhood, their own high school experience, their own college experience. And that is a huge problem for Republicans heading into the midterms. Layer on top of that, that Brett Kavanaugh was a an angry, demeaning bully, which also felt all too familiar to men and women across the country. And I just think it's a really bad look for Republicans 40 days out from the midterms, particularly with female voters and millennials who already were inclined to vote against them, but have all the more motivation and reason to. Meredith also says, in the close districts where Democrats pull out victories, we're likely gonna see a historic gender gap, where maybe 65% of women vote for the Democrat, and something like 40% of the men vote for the Democrat. And issues like the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation battle may only exacerbate that division. But Republicans are actually starting to think the Kavanaugh fight might have benefited them. In the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh uh, confirmation fight, Republicans felt like their base was energized for the first time in months. That's Rachel Bade. She covers House Republicans for Politico, and she's been asking a lot of Republicans how they can successfully run in this climate. I talked to Kevin McCarthy, the House Majority Leader, just a few days after that, and he was saying that they were seeing polls in their districts. The president's approval rating was going up as much as five points in some of these swing districts. And some of their members were who they thought were, you know, done, were actually coming back to life and actually had a shot at keeping their seats. And so it sounds like there was a calculation made that what is the best way to continue this energy? And the best way, it seemed to them, was, you know, to rally behind the president. Um, And so you've seen a lot of people, a lot of Republican members in swing districts that you would think would want to put some distance between themselves and the president, really hugging him, if not him. Again, the policies, the caravan issue right now, totally dominating this whole culture debate. We've seen for the first time since I can remember the NRCC doing ads where they criticize someone for being, uh, quote, not like us. Uh, I'm thinking specifically in New York, um, Antonio uh, Delgado, yes. Um, And he you know, he's a former rapper who has become a such a small Rhodes part of Louis. scholar, yeah, right. Harvard um, graduate, Rhodes scholar. Yes, uh, lawyer, like, and is running for office uh, against Faso, right, um, uh, Congressman Faso, and he. Republicans have basically attacked him for being a, quote, big city rapper. Big city politicians are crushing upstate families. Just like Governor Cuomo and Nancy Pelosi, big city rapper Antonio Delgado supports their radical government takeover of health care. The cost and have, you know, ads showing him with a hoodie on sort of glaring at the camera in some Democrats and even some Republican leaders in those that district have said that these ads are you know, unacceptable and have racially tinged, like a racial tint to them, um, and that they should take them down. Um, And so that's not launching or grabbing or running toward Trump, I guess you would say, but it's definitely taking his playbook. It's yeah, it's his playbook. But the one thing Republicans have, I guess, in this election is that Democrats are energized. We've always known that it was going to be the case. But it seems like they've really been able to find a way to get Republicans energized. And that really might yeah. blunt the wave. And the interesting thing about that is that it, it was the confirmation of Kavanaugh, who was accused of you know sexually assaulting someone in high school, that gave them that energy. Up here on the Hill, I would say the dynamic between the Republican women and the Democratic women during that confirmation fight was really interesting to watch because, you know, we've seen the nation for the past year, ever since the Me Too movement took off, um, 
women have really sort of supported each other when they come forward and shared their stories. And for the first time, we really saw women divided on party lines uh, up here on Capitol Hill, where the Republican women tended to believe Brett Kavanaugh over Christine Blasey Ford, and the Democratic women believed Christine Blasey Ford. And we're saying about the Republican counterparts, how can you betray your gender like this? Um, I remember talking to Jackie Speier, who is uh, a California Democrat and a huge advocate for women when it comes to, you know, combating sexual assault, sexual harassment. And she was like, 90 some percent of women who come forward are telling the truth. How can you not believe her? Um, Now, I don't know if that stat is right. um, But again, it just highlights the tension that we saw up here between the Republican women and the Democratic women. Um, But yeah, this it was just fascinating because a lot of people, I think, thought the confirmation process would only help Democrats in terms of politically and like turn out women voters. Um, But it really sort of excited the Republican base. Uh, And now, you know, Republicans say they potentially have a chance of keeping the House. Much of that could be because of Brett Kavanaugh. But the Kavanaugh confirmation battle might have done more than just energize both parties. It also might have crystallized a very deep breakdown between Republican and Democratic women. So this is something that's been on my mind basically since the Kavanaugh hearings. That's Ariel Edwards-Levy. She's the polling editor at HuffPost. And on top of being one of the punniest people on Twitter, she knows her way around a crosstab. We did a survey where we asked people, do you personally identify either with Kavanaugh or with uh, Dr. Ford? And we asked them why. And the responses really stuck with me because they were, um, among women, they were operating under such a different set of assumptions that seemed sort of incompatible, where among mostly um, women who voted for Hillary Clinton, you saw responses like, she represented every woman because I'm a woman, I have the same experiences as her. They felt that this was an issue to do with gender and they felt very deeply connected with her over gender. And then Trump voters, They did not feel the same kinship, even female Trump voters. They would say things like, well, um, Brett Kavanaugh is a Christian and a conservative, and I'm a Christian and a conservative too. So you had one group of people, one group of women who were saying, our gender is so important here. You had another group of women who were saying, this isn't something that I consider to be part of the discussion right now. And so we ran a survey where we basically asked people to look at a number of demographics, partisanship, religion, gender, financial status. And we asked, do you think that you have a lot in common with other people who share these attributes with you? And what we found was that um, about half of uh, Democratic women say that they feel that they have a lot in common and a lot of mutual interests with other women. And for Republicans, that number is just a little over half that with the vast majority saying, no, I don't feel this. So not just, so this is basically controlled for the fact that this was the Kavanaugh for hearings, right? You're saying a number I mean, of issues, I mean, this, not just that issue. Yeah, I mean, this was a little bit after that. Right. So, you know, I think that might have faded a little bit in terms of the salience of that. But, and you know, we saw it with other factors too, things like religion. Um, Republicans were more likely to say that their religious beliefs than, you know, sorry, um, like Protestant Republicans were more likely than Protestant Democrats to say that their religion was something that they felt that they had a lot of kinship with other people who shared it with them. And I think what that says is that we all have a habit of talking about these demographic blocks as though they're these indivisible groups of people. 
Exactly, a monolith. And women are not a monolith any more than men are or any more than any other group of people are. You see that in the splits where they might lean one way or another, but you know, if 40% of people vote for something that's a minority, it's still a whole lot of people. And what you see is that, you know, gen views really are very much polarized. They're divided along party lines. So women who are Republicans and women who are Democrats don't share a lot, including a definition of what it means to be a woman and how important that is to them. Now, the thing that complicates that is that, of course, uh, there is this factor that both parties, other attributes have become more and more polarized. So now you see that more and more women are democratic. And when you have that, you can sort of see maybe why for Republican women, they wouldn't feel very much in a group that's increasingly turning away from them politically. Essentially, what Ariel is saying is that Democratic women do feel more of a kinship with women, but Republican women aren't feeling that as much. She's also a little more doubtful that 2018 is really the year of the woman. I think I'm generally skeptical of the idea that one can drive a wave. You know, there are so many groups, there are so many factors that I think when you look at the end result of millions of people voting for thousands of candidates, it's hard to say, oh, it's this particular demographic group, it's this particular issue. You know, do I think that many women, especially young women, are very motivated? Yes. Do I think that if that means that more younger women turn out than in past elections, it's going to make a difference? Yes. Is it going to be something where you can point to that and say, that's the factor that changed this? There are always a lot of factors that change things. So a stat we hear all the time is 52% uh, of white women voted for Trump, that he won white women. A lot of people find that surprising. Yeah. Should we really be surprised by that statistic? No, and I mean, it's actually very much sort of in keeping with past um, performance among white women. And I guess the sort of implication is that maybe they should have, women or white women should have just turned away from Trump in large numbers. And in fact, I mean, what you saw in 2016 in many ways was not that atypical from what you'd see in a presidential election. Now, there has been a trend among women away from the Republican Party toward the Democratic Party, and it looks like um, that shift has maybe exacerbated a little bit under President Trump. It's not something that started with him. And what you really see it concentrated in is specific groups of women. So if you look at college-educated women, if you look at millennial women especially, you see that movement a lot more clearly. So women are supporting Democrats more strongly, but this is nothing new. Still. In races where one or two points could be the deciding factor, a shift in the support of women could be huge. So how do Republicans combat that? Again, Rachel Bade. I remember talking to multiple people in leadership, you know, a few months ago at the outset of when campaign season was really heating up, and they were very clear about the fact that they felt they could only keep the House if they attracted suburban women. Um, and, you know, I was talking to someone in leadership just a couple of weeks ago, right after the Kavanaugh hearing. And they said, okay, we can potentially keep the house if we can keep up this enthusiasm, but we also can't bleed anymore with suburban women. Like we just can't. Um, and that was, I think a couple days before Trump made that comment about Stormy Daniels and her quote, horse face. Um, now I don't know that that turned off any new voters who were already against the president. But now we're talking about the caravan issue. There was a report around that time that the administration was thinking about doing 
a family separation policy 2.0. Now that has disappeared. And I don't know if somebody got to the White House and said, what the heck are you doing? Do not do this right now. This would kill us with women because it would. But they, they have stopped talking about that. Uh, and I think that's probably on purpose. Rachel has been following one race pretty closely, the race between conservative Republican Dave Bratt, the Virginia representative who took down then-Majority Leader Eric Cantor in 2014 during a primary, and former CIA agent and Democratic candidate Abigail Spanberger. She wrote a piece a few weeks ago about how Bratt, who again is very conservative, has been playing both worlds. Essentially, with some groups he campaigns as a conservative, and with other groups he presents himself as some sort of moderate. I got this recording of a fundraiser he had with Jim Jordan, who's the Freedom Caucus founder, uh, one of the most biggest Trump supporters on the Hill, super conservative. So he was raising money with him and they were praising the president, um, talking about going on Fox News and railing against the Mueller investigation, which is obviously uh, uh, investigating the president uh, for any connection he might have had with the Russian interference in the election. And he was he was on a, a red meat tear um, in that in that fundraiser. And then you sort of compare that with the ads he's been running in Richmond, which talk about him saving puppies, uh, literally. Dave Bratt wrote bipartisan legislation to stop a federal agency from conducting cruel medical research on dogs. Because our tax dollars should never go to pay for something that's cruel. Some ideas are just common sense. And hey, it looks like some folks are pretty happy about it. I'll just note here that in this ad, it's mostly just shots of a bunch of dogs, with Dave Bratt and his wife both holding some dogs at the end. Anyway, here's Rachel again. These are not things he talks about in the hallways. You know, when you and I catch him, he talks about uh, economics and, you know, harps on, you know, Democrats and never talks about bipartisan issues. I can't ever think of one time where I've been in a conversation with Dave Bratt where he has talked up a bipartisan bill he has. So two very different Bratts. Um, and a lot of this is because he's getting advice, I think, from two different sides of the party. And this is where Republicans in these tough districts are having to choose which strategy best fits them. Do they run with the president or do they run against the president? And with Brad, he has GOP leaders here in Washington who are saying, localize your race, talk about local issues, you know, don't necessarily talk about the president all the time, uh, although the president in Brad's district is doing pretty well. I think he's above 50%, which helps Brad quite a bit. And then you have Jim Jordan, uh, who was in that fundraising, specifically saying in that fundraiser, even in swing districts, we have to run toward the president. Um, and so with Brad, it looks like he's doing both, depending on who his audience is, um, which perhaps is the best way to do it, because if he's out there praising Trump in Richmond, you know, his Democratic challenger is going to win. But if he doesn't turn out Trump voters, his Democratic challenger is going to win as well. So he's got to do he's got to do both. Coming up, we're going to hear from Dave Bratt and his challenger, Abigail Spanberger. I don't think it's a toss up. That's Congressman Dave Bratt. I've covered him very closely since he came to Congress in 2014. Okay. For starters, you remember four years ago, I was down 30 with a week to go by McLaughlin and one by 10. So you can imagine my attitude toward the political experts up here. 
for uh, starters. One thing I, I sort of noticed is, and this is a big trend in the Democratic Party, is sort of the skewing more towards women, uh, where you know the Democratic future is female, basically. That the support there. Do you yeah. worry at all about? No, no. And, and the rough polling I've seen there, that split is not there in my polling. So you, you have not, not like the news is reporting. So you People have, know I taught their kids for 20 years in the district. Everybody knows who I am, right? People forget the obvious when you teach their kids. Hey, keep praying. I should explain this part really quickly. I interviewed Brat on his way to votes, and Brat saw one of the staffers who checks the IDs of people walking underground from the house buildings to the Capitol. He told him to keep praying. Anyway, more Dave Brat. When you teach your kids economics and ethics for 20 years, and that fans out over the broader region, and you were in economic circles and worked in the state senate for seven years with a head of senate finance, etc. People, right? There are a lot of Democrats who are focused on the issues that are important at the local level. And there are a lot of Democrats who are focused on trying to return our government, return Congress to a functioning state. That's Abigail Spanberger. She's a former CIA officer who's looking to unseat Brat. People who talk about bipartisanship, people who talk about um, working together, people who talk about actually trying to solve and address the problems and challenges facing our communities. I asked Spanberger about some of the attacks Brat has leveled against her. In my interview with Brat, he said her support for Medicare for All should be disqualifying. Spanberger says she doesn't support that policy. I think his lies about my policy stances should potentially be disqualifying. Um, yeah, so I have always been on the record as supporting a public option, and that has never changed. There was actually in our primary attack ads run against me for not supporting single payer, so I find it so comical that uh, he refuses to acknowledge or admit uh, what my actual stance is. But, I mean, it's a talking point for him, uh, and he seems inflexible with his talking points, so it's what he stuck with and started with, so. Um, but, you know, I, I, I can't be surprised that he continues to misrepresent or lie about my position because he's certainly not listening to most of his constituents, so it should be no surprise that he's not listening to me. I asked Spanberger why she wouldn't support Medicare for All. And she gave me a long answer that boiled down to her supporting a public option and wanting to look at long-term savings while also making sure people have access to healthcare. Suffice to say, I wasn't terribly convinced that she would never support Medicare for All. But I also happened to find that Brat isn't talking about this issue honestly. My opponent went all in on healthcare until our paper reported that the cost of Medicare for All is 32 trillion over 10, reported by George Mason University. And to pay for just that addition to socialism, you'd have to double the corporate and personal rates. And since that story came out, not a word on health care. But obviously they found an overall savings of the health care program. <laughs> well, that's true. That's a $3 trillion savings. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying government spending. I understand it's a... No, yeah. Well, there's no... I mean, that's what I mean. It's a, if you impose communism and then say we're going to have some efficiencies, I don't think so. What we're talking about here is a Mercatus Center study that looked at the costs of Medicare for all. And what was so interesting about this study is that even though the Mercatus Center is a slightly conservative think tank, their own analysis found that Medicare for all would actually save money when compared with spending on the entire healthcare system. You know, you're, 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 you're comparing government spending to overall health spending. The $32 trillion is 
that's a marginal increase of 32 trillion. You'd have to double the. Let me repeat this. I, so, the, your I, reporters. I, I get it. I've read. I've read. I've read. The, double the, the personal income tax rate, and double the corporate rate. We just did 150 billion so presum- in tax so, cut this so year that would- had a huge stimulative effect. There's no economic analysis that shows the tax cuts have had a huge stimulus effect. They've had a very modest effect, and they haven't really affected most people's take-home pay. But that's a whole other discussion. Can you imagine a 32 trillion over 10 tax increase? All right, so is this the issue that you're talking about? Yes, it's disqualifying. And if the press would ever report some news and facts, it would be very helpful. And then she's open borders for sanctuary cities. She's for getting rid of the tax cuts. She called them dangerous. She was wrong on everything she said about taxes. And so, hello. But your figure here is you're, you're presuming replacing the entire healthcare system, which is its own cost, right? It's more than current government spending. I and mean, that's I think the apples to apples comparison is, right? A, a Medicare for all system and the overall health cost of the healthcare system. You can phrase it that way. I would prefer to phrase it. You'd have to double the personal income tax rate to pay for that proposal and double the corporate rate. You'd be in depression. There are, of course, a number of ways to pay for a Medicare for all system that don't involve the tax hikes Brat is talking about. For one, we could start by using the money that employers already pay into the system for private insurance. But I'm not here to get into a fight about Medicare for All. The point of sharing this exchange is just to say I get why Spanberger is frustrated with how Bratt misrepresents her positions. It's disappointing, frankly, that there's anyone who would uh, achieve the position of an elected official who uh, can be so insincere and, and so disengaged from the needs of the people in his district. You know, the fact that he continues to run attack ads against me that are just uh, just shameful in the way that they uh, pander and lie and misrepresent and try to stoke fear and anger. Um, it, it's, it, it's, um, it, it's really just disappointing. I also asked Spanberger about Bratt's attacks that she'd be another vote for Nancy Pelosi. We noted in our episode about Nancy Pelosi that Bratt brought up Pelosi 21 times during a debate with Spanberger. It's a ridiculous attack, particularly in my case. I mean, I've, I've been on the record saying I won't support her for speaker. I did a television ad saying I won't support her as speaker. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons why it really rings hollow in our district, because uh, most people have seen the words come out of my mouth on television saying that I, I support new leadership in Washington and, and won't vote for her. But But again, I think that not only does it ring hollow as an attack, but I think it also just speaks to the fact that he's continuing to try these these kind of tired attacks on you know your generic Democrat. The you know Nancy falls in line with Nancy Pelosi, supports a thirty-two trillion dollar health plan, all of these sorts of things. You know the open borders and all of the rest of it. Um, it it's just he's not running against me. He's he's just lying about my positions and he's kind of trying to attack me in this generic anti-Democrat uh, model. Uh, but, but I mean, certainly I think uh, it, it must be effective someplace if they continue to do it. Um, but um, hopefully it won't, be, it won't be effective in our race. Spanberger also thinks Bratt only sees himself as representing the Republicans in his district. I asked her about one particular comment Bratt made this year about female protesters getting up in his grill. This is from a meeting Brad had with conservative groups in 2017. Since Obamacare and these issues have come up, the women 
are in my grill. No matter where I go. Saying, they come up. When's your next town hall? And they, believe me, it's not to give positive input. Yeah. They showed up here. Here, they're here. No, I, today, so they, minutes ago. Right. And so that, on my Facebook, there's a whole new paradigm going on on the official side, the campaign side. Uh, we're going to change. I think he demonstrates a general lack of respect for the constituency that, that doesn't support him or that didn't support him at the polls in 2016. And I think that, you know, that's truly unfortunate because it is our differences of opinion that make us a strong and vibrant country when we are able to have a functioning two-party system that, that pushes and pulls and, and challenges uh, one another. I think that um, his unwillingness to have hard conversations or be challenged um, is, is, is one of the reasons why I don't think he should continue as a representative because um, anyone who is so unwilling to be challenged or questioned really shouldn't be in a role of leadership, particularly um, in, a, in a position where one is charged with, with legislating in a way that's supposed to positively impact our communities. Um, but I, I, I think it's his general dismissive um, uh, demeanor towards, towards his constituents that, that, that those comments are indicative of, and, um, and certainly it, it didn't sit, sit very well with, with many of his uh, women constituents. So what does all of this mean? Are women about to hand Democrats control of the House? And how serious is the Republican Party's woman problem? Well, we don't know how this election is going to turn out, but it's certainly looking all right for Democrats. Again, they are poised to retake the House, and there's even a chance Democrats have a shot at the Senate, though it's also possible Republicans gain a seat or two there, and everyone largely considers this election a draw, maybe even a win for the GOP. But if Republicans do hold on to both chambers, or even just keep Democrats to a narrow majority in the House, they might end up learning the wrong lessons. Republicans do have a woman problem. They've had one for years, but it's getting worse. That doesn't mean there aren't pathways to victory for them. Donald Trump has shown Republicans they can win by running on fear and culture war issues. And what's also overlooked is that Democrats might have a male problem. Again, in a lot of these toss-up districts, the Democratic candidate may only receive around 40% of the vote for men. But in the long term, a gender gap where roughly 65% of women nationally support the Democratic candidate is untenable for Republicans. If they're going to control government in the future, they have to find ways to do better with women. And that starts with recruiting women for lower offices the way Democrats do. Part of this female resistance is certainly organic. Trump is naturally mobilizing a lot of women to go out and support Democrats. But Democrats are also making a concerted effort to get more women in office. It's amazing that Republicans aren't doing more, and they disregard this issue at their own peril. We'd like to thank Congresswoman Sherry Bustos, Congressman Dave Bratt, Abigail Spanberger, Dave Wasserman, Rachel Bade, Heather Cagle, Meredith Kelly, and Ariel Edwards-Levy. The Wave is produced by Chris Boniello and Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and me, Matt Fuller from HuffPost. If you like this podcast, subscribe to The Wave now for our future episodes. 
The music you heard in this episode was from Breakmaster Cylinder, Jim Jaguar, and Zach Forsberg Larry. If you like some of the songs we used, you can check out Jim and Zach's music by googling Isthmus and the Lisps. Universe.